Welcome to Alan and Every Podcast. I'm Sally Dewar, CEO of ANO Consulting. While life in financial services is never dull, recent events have put sharp focus back on the importance of having a safe and sound financial services sector underpinned by robust regulation and with strong leadership in financial firms. With me today to talk about this and broader topics, front and centre for banks in particular, is Tracy McDermott. Tracy is the Head of Conduct, Financial Crime and Compliance at Standard Chartered and previously served as the Acting CEO of the Financial Conduct Authority. She is Chair of the United Nations Convened Net Zero Banking Alliance, Chair of the Conduct and Ethics Committee of the FIC Market Standards Board and is on the Steering Committee of the 30% Club. Thank you so much for joining me today. We've got lots to discuss. So maybe, Tracy, we start with recent events um, and whether we think the resolution framework that was put in place post-financial crisis has actually worked in practice. So I think it's probably a bit of a mixed bag. I think what we have seen is that the resolution framework hasn't actually been rolled out perhaps in the way it might have been expected. So um, we saw um, deposit guarantees effectively in the US for unlimited amounts of deposit, which obviously is part of what the resolution regime is supposed to avoid the need for. Um, and we also saw effectively an orchestrated merger stroke takeover in, in Switzerland. So we haven't really yet tested the resolution regime in in all its glory, but I think what we have seen is that the strength, the underlying strength of the majority of the banking sector is much much greater than it was in 2008 um, and yeah, the previous crisis. I think the other interesting question is to the extent that the resolution regime hasn't been used, is that because there was a problem with the regime or because there was a problem with where the boundaries had been drawn as to what was in it and what was outside it, particularly in the US? I think the um, uh, the speed with which it seemed to all happen sort of shocked me a bit. And then I thought, well, the difference between 2008 and now is social media. Do you think that played a big part? So I think my recollection is it felt pretty quick in 2008 as well, to be honest. Um, and I'm sure you remember that um, very well. But certainly, I think um, not just social media, but actually the fact that you can sit here and you can have your phone and you can withdraw or transfer money you know, at the drop of a, a hat 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You know, that wasn't necessarily quite so straightforward back in 2008. So there was a little more time for the authorities and for bank management to to think through um, their options. And I think the speed, that speed of availability of people being able to take their money out is probably the biggest thing that's changed. And then social media obviously compounds that because you then see in real time that deposits are going down and you get the rush for the door, etc. So everything just as with so much in life, I guess, happens quicker than it used to. And, and when we think about... Um uh, processes that the government had in place through the Edinburgh reforms to try and simplify um, regulation to make the UK more competitive post-Brexit. Do you think their thinking will change post what's just happened? So I think the Edinburgh reforms overall are a relatively modest package of reforms. I mean, there's a lot of talk about um, you know wanting to sort of make change, but when you actually look at the substance of what's being proposed... It's more, I would say, 
elements of sort of refinement and tweaking around the edges rather than a sort of, you know, Big Bang 2.0 approach. Um, So I don't think it will fundamentally change that. I think one of the things that underpins the Edinburgh reforms, which is quite interesting, is perhaps a change in the political rhetoric. So a recognition of the really critical role that financial services plays in the UK economy and the importance of promoting and protecting that. Um, Where I think there will be um, a sort of degree of caution um, coming back in, probably probably advisedly, is not to be too hasty to assume that the reforms that were put in place post-2008 should be dismantled without really careful um, thought. But as I said, I think when you look at the Edinburgh Reforms Package as a whole, is a relatively targeted set of interventions in particular areas rather than a root and branch um, reform. And I think if there was ever a potential root and branch reform, probably the events of the last few months have probably put that back in the drawer for the, the time being. So do you think the senior managers regime is still here to stay? So I, to be honest, I never thought the senior managers regime was going to um, going to go away. I think you know, and I think in many ways the senior manager regime has has achieved quite a lot of what it was expected to. I don't know your perspective from from where you sit, but I think in terms of the focus on people understanding, you know, where are their responsibilities, where are the overlaps and underlaps, you know, and that driving that sense of personal accountability has been largely a success. There's no doubt tweaks that can be made to make it more efficient and there's no doubt areas particularly in relation to approvals and authorization processes and so on that can be improved um, but I certainly don't see a world where we're going to be you know told that this is going away but and and equally I my perception is that most firms would say net net it's been a positive albeit as you say um, you have to take care to make sure that that individual accountability isn't doesn't go too far or that people are clear what their reasonable steps are intended to be yeah i think as i would definitely agree with that i think overall it's been positive for financial services it's been positive positive in terms of um within individual to firms you know the culture the focus on um ensuring that regulatory responsibilities are discharged as with all of these things i think it's been through something of a bedding in process um, and yeah, the key for all of these sorts of reforms is actually how do you translate them into something which in practice works to mean that you run your organisation better, not just because it's a regulatory expectation, but because that's in the interest of your shareholders, your employees and your clients. And I think trying to make sure that this becomes part of the fabric of how you run the bank rather than something that you do separately alongside running the bank is the key question. Yeah, so without saying the word, you're really talking about the organisational culture, I guess, here. And do you think that played a part in what's happened recently? Should the focus go back to culture or is that just one component of the whole um, set of issues? So um, I'm not sure the focus has ever gone off culture, to be honest. I think it's you know, certainly in my kind of day job it's something we spend a lot of time talking about and thinking about and something that's very much embedded and I think it's um if if one of my colleagues my head of HR colleague was here she would tear her hair out of the thought of a description of risk culture because um one of her points and I think she's absolutely right is 
you know, the culture of an organization doesn't segment into your risk culture and your other culture and, and this, that and the other. And actually, really, risk management is at the heart of what banks do, right? That's banks exist in order to take risk and to transform risk. And so, you know, it should be a part of the overall DNA of the organization rather than, again, something that's done sort of on the side. So I completely agree with you. The regulators are very focused on ensuring that effectively managing risk is something which is a key part of your organizational culture. Um, and they do tend to call it risk culture, but um, but I think it's a you know, it's a broader, um, how do you do this in every single decision you make every single day, rather than when you're just thinking about risk. Yeah. Shall we talk a bit about um, one of the other topics that's firmly, I guess, on banks' radars at the minute around ESG? And, you know, there's so much regulation, good practice, um, you know, sort of do this, do that. How are banks actually getting their arms around this agenda? It's, it's a fascinating agenda um, and a really complicated one. And it's fascinating partly because it's become it's such a big part of the discussion around stakeholder capitalism and the role of banks or the role of financial services in society. Um, as we look at a you know an economic situation more broadly that's sort of deteriorating for a large you know, proportion of, of populations across the globe, you know what does that mean? And I think the ESG conversation becomes a really critical part of the conversation, not just with regulators but with clients, with governments, and importantly with with employees. Um, and I, I suppose in terms of kind of how do you manage it from within the bank? The, the first point I would say is that it's not necessarily something that fits neatly into, oh, it sits here or it sits there, because it really is all-encompassing, um, particularly the S bits, because if you're thinking about you know, the social side of it, it encompasses you know, fair pay for your employees, supply chains, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the first thing is to say is sort of it's really taking a whole of whole of institution, a whole of bank view about it. The, the second thing I think is recognizing that some of the risks that we're talking about are basically old risks, but they just manifest in a new way. So greenwashing gets talked about yeah. a lot, but greenwashing is effectively, you know, false advertising, mis-selling, lack of suitability when it comes down to it. So I think um, you know, one of the things we've been very focused on is trying to be careful to work out when do you need a new framework yeah. to manage it and when is it simply about updating an existing framework. Then there's obviously some things which are completely new um, to, to most of us. So when you think about physical risks from climate or transition risks from climate change policy changing and the sort of yeah, how that's going to manifest through, it's a whole different language you know, around net zero, around carbon neutrality and so on, that we're all having to to learn. So there's an enormous education process in this. And then I'd say the final thing that makes it challenging and interesting is this is an incredibly political area with both a small and a large P. Um, and people can have very, very black and white views on what the the right answer is. And trying to find the space to have the discussion around the nuances of some of that can be really challenging um, uh, to, to sort of for people to understand what are the trade-offs you're making and, and who's suffering as a result of those trade-offs or who's benefiting. 
And, and are those conversations going right up to board level? Do they need to be focused on as a strategic board agenda? So absolutely, I think this is a, a massive strategic agenda and certainly something at Standard Charter that our board have been incredibly focused on for, for some time now, partly because of the markets in which we operate, which are some of the markets which, particularly if you look at climate, potentially most impacted by the um, effects of climate change without necessarily having been in um, countries that have benefited from you know, the creation of the problem in the first place. Um, and I think it's really important that it is a board level conversation and a senior executive management conversation because you are fundamentally talking about things that go to the heart of your business strategy. You know, we've we've moved on a long way from the world when the sort of environmental social things was something you did in your corporate social responsibility team and it was a bit of a sort of, you know, how do we kind of, you know, help communities by kind of doing some volunteering. You know, you really are now talking about things that fundamentally impact on the nature of the business you'll do, the sorts of clients you'll interact with, you know, the sorts of products you'll provide, and frankly, the sorts of employees you will attract and retain. So and I, I guess it makes for some interesting conversations in your compliance function. How are you thinking about your oversight, second line responsibilities for ESG? So I think as a one of the things I mentioned before was that it doesn't always necessarily sit obviously in one place. And I think one of the things that we have been um, working through and we're still sort of working through to some extent is, you know, what sits in compliance um, and particularly when you look at the regulatory landscape in this um, space, it's evolving very, very quickly across the globe. So, so how much of that sits in the kind of horizon scanning, trying to influence and help to, to shape policy, whether it be through um, you know, through regulators or through organisations like the Net Zero Banking Alliance. Um, then you've got things which very much sit in the credit risk space. So, you know, are certain companies good credit risks in the future? Are you going to have stranded assets? Um, and then you've obviously got um, reputational risk issues, which probably where most of this started. You know, a few years ago, it was primarily reputational risk. Um, that's gone, you know, to be just one of a whole host of risks. So I think it's a um, so so within compliance, we've we've we have a kind of virtual team where we brought people from across different bits of the function to look at. Okay, how does the ESG agenda impact on our retail business? How does it impact on our wholesale business and so on? Um, because as I said earlier, you kind of need to make sure you're embedding it into existing frameworks as much as you are creating a new specialist thing that sits um, independently. The, the great thing about the ESG agenda, though, is that people are very passionate about it. So people want to learn and we've we've rolled out mandatory training for people across the function on the, the basic concepts of ESG. I, I guess one of the challenges that we find is that firms aren't yet joining up. So there's lots of initiatives going on on ESG in quite siloed ways and actually some decisions taken in one bit of the bank may negatively impact the short term other parts of the bank, whether it be about a client or a product or whatever. So getting that that overarching join up must be quite important as well. Yeah, and we've um, 
Yeah, we have a few mechanisms for, for doing that. Most recently, last year, we appointed a chief sustainability officer who is actually responsible for joining those dots um, across the, the entirety of, of the bank. Um, and so a key part of, of her role is is really understanding all of those implications and bringing the, the various parties together. We also have some um, structural governance framework. So we have a, a reputational responsibility risk committee, which I happen to chair, which sort of looks at clients' transactions, looks at our overall positions and has obviously a, a representation on the committee from across the first and, and second line. Um, and we have um, as also a cross-bank sort of for sustainability forum, which is more of a sharing experience, understanding how we're progressing against the various initiatives and so on. So it does it does take quite a lot of effort to bring all of those things together. Um, but you're absolutely right that if you don't do that, you run the risk of either having you know decisions which are in conflict. Or actually completely destroying your credibility because you're saying one thing and espousing one thing as part of your values or as part of your ESG commitments. And then it turns out you're doing something completely different. Yeah. Um, should we move on to another sort of topic du jour around um, technology and the emergence of generative AI and just thinking around how that is impacting the way you're thinking about business in the banking world? So I think one of the interesting things about generative AI, particularly as a, a sort of, you know, mother of teenage children, is thinking about the way in which it could potentially really change the world in a very significant way. And I think ways which we probably don't even yet anticipate. And I think, you know, I mean, we've been talking about AI for quite a number of years. Um and it, yet it seems in the last, I was going to say 12 months, it's probably even the last six months, the conversation has really changed and suddenly seeing what the potential capability is of, of generative AI. And I think from a, from a you know, bank perspective, there are some huge opportunities there because you could see ways in which this AI could be used to to do an awful lot of things that basic research, basic drafting, and so on and so forth, which really then brings the premium to the human applying the sort of judgment at the end of it, which makes for a sort of more interesting role. But it obviously also has huge risks attached to it. I mean, the most obvious at the moment is that it's not reliable, yeah. you know, and it makes things up and, you know, all of those sorts of things, which is slightly alarming when you think about it from a a compliance perspective, I think there's also lots of questions about whose data is it and how is it being used and did people understand that and, and so on and so forth. Um, for an organisation like Standard Chartered, there's also a big question around you know, what it does sort of globally. So does it have a whole set of cultural biases built into it? Well, inevitably it does because it's been trained on English language internet. Um, but actually, how will it be regulated in different markets? Um, and then I think it has a huge question, and you, know, you and I were talking about this just before, around the kind of what does this mean for the future employment market? How do you train junior lawyers, junior compliance officers in the future? Because we all learned through sort of pulling all this stuff out of books or internet search and it's so on. It's that um, 
ability to exercise judgment comes from being in a workplace and and progressing how do you does this fast track that and then does that judgment not get you know founded I think lots and lots of experiments happening, you know, um, exactly the same sort of things as people are doing in their day-to-day life, you know, write me an essay about this or, you know, write me a board paper about that. So I think people are testing it. It's interesting to see how um, tools are now being rolled out within more established sort of suites of documents to say, you know, you can have things that could produce your meeting minutes, for instance. You know, there's a lot of things that you can start experimenting with which are relatively low risk so using internal if, if you can apply the tools to internal data and then use it to you know, generate emails generate minutes follow up on action points all of those are relatively low risk um you, know, you can't take the human out of them yet because it's not necessarily going to write the things reliably but you can start to see how you could play with that that is obviously very much at the foothills, I think, of what the capacity could be. Um, but I think that's certainly where we're stepping toes into the water of looking at how do you think about using it and what it might do. Um, and then, as I said, I think there's some really interesting questions about how it will or won't be regulated going forward. Yeah. Um, should we talk a little bit about um, DE&I? Because you're, you're clearly somebody who... Um, is at the forefront of of thinking about this with your position on the thirty percent club. How do you think, as a sector, we're doing on the DEI agenda? So I think one of the it's quite difficult to say as a sector how um, how we're doing. Um, I think one of the fascinating things um, is the nature of the way this conversation has changed, though, over the past you know twenty years or so. Um, but, you know, to what I see now is it much more of an embedded part of the, the conversation. So what might have at one point been thought of as a little bit out there to be having some of these conversations uh, around different aspects of diversity is is really quite mainstream. I think the conversation has very much moved on to the conversation about inclusion. So it's less about just having specific numbers and representation. It's more about actually how do you draw on that diversity and really get the the benefits from it. And you're also seeing matters like social mobility really coming up to the fore. So you're sort of seeing that actually people are thinking in a much broader way. Um, And I personally hate the word intersectionality but um, it does describe the point of, of you know where you have lots of you know everybody has a whole bunch of different characteristics whether it's that they're a carer or whether that you know they're black or whether they're female or whatever it is and how does all of that impact together so I think um, it's a sort of long answer to your question but in terms of the short answer I think we're doing a lot more and it's a lot more mainstream than it used to be if we look at outputs um, and outcomes, um, we still have, you know, the vast majority of CEOs in the FTSE and in financial services are, are men, mainly white men. Um, you know, most senior leaders come from more privileged social backgrounds. You know, ethnic minorities are underrepresented on boards and so on. So we've made progress, but I think there's an awfully long way that we need to go before it is really um, a truly inclusive. And do you think that's a matter of time or do you think that we need to redouble efforts to accelerate the the change? 
Um, I think it's both. I think it's inevitably a matter of time, but I think that time alone isn't going to get us there. Um, and if time was the only question, the picture would look very different now for what it does. Um, so I think, and I don't know, I can't remember the data statistics. I think it's something that World Economic Forum says it's going to take 200 years or something to achieve equal pay at current rates of progress. So that's time, but I don't think that's time that any of us would think was acceptable. So I think it is about redoubling efforts. And there are some real opportunities, I think, coming off the back of um, the pandemic and increase in hybrid working, things like that. I think there's been a, a, a much greater recognition of actually people as humans, people as people, um, being an important part of what actually makes a workplace productive and what makes a place pleasant to work in or, or not. Um, and also recognition that actually balancing you know, home and work can be done in a way which perhaps is non-traditional, but actually is still um, effective. So I think it's important that we seize those lessons and think about how do we make the workplace more inclusive so that we do really drive that greater diversity. It's interesting though, because the, the current narrative in the banking sector is to seems to be to get everybody back to the office much more full-time than was previously thought. Um, is that something that you're seeing? Is it something that you think is the right direction of travel? So I think it's, uh, I think it's not the narrative everywhere. Um, it's certainly very publicly the narrative in, in certain institutions and, and I think probably in more in certain jurisdictions, certain geographies than others. Um, you know, we, from a standard charter perspective, have gone to a hybrid model where people got to choose how many days they, they want to be in the office. We definitely have been encouraging people to come back into the office in in a way which is consistent with that. So if you said you want to be in the office two days, come into the office two days. Um, and the reason we're doing that is because I think one of the other things we learned from the pandemic was that, you know, we lose a huge amount when we don't interact with other human beings, you know, on a regular basis. And there is definitely something around what you do when you're in the office, interacting with your colleagues and your teams um, informally and on a face-to-face -face basis that you just can't replicate. But there's also lots of other things that you can do, which can be done perfectly well in a remote way. So I think, yeah, as with all things flexible working, I think the key to flexibility is actually being flexible in all sorts of different directions, but having some structure around it. Um, and so what we've been trying to do is to be much more considered about, okay, if you're in the office, why are you in the office? There's no point in coming into the office and then spending the whole day sat in, in conference calls, you know, Zoom calls with people, you know, on the other side of the world, which is often obviously given the nature of our organisation and our bank, you know, you spend a lot of time talking to people on the other side of the world. Um, so there's no point in being in the office if that's what you're going to do. But actually for learning, for, you know, team meetings, for brainstorming issues, for trying to sort of be creative and so on, a lot of those things work better in a, in a, in a physical face-to-face -face forum. So trying to make sure you structure your days so that you build them around that, I think, is what we're trying to do. And, and yeah, frankly, we're all learning. Um, and, you know, I'm sure you must have the same thing here that, you know, what works, what doesn't work um, for individuals. The, the key for me is to um, make sure our younger 
team members have the environment in which to learn and develop. And we definitely saw through COVID that not having a presence where they could listen, engage in the conversation, hear what's going on around them really did impact their development. So for me, it's, it's that sense of community, I think. I think that's right. And I think, you know, you, we talked about culture earlier on as well. And, you know, an awful lot of what you pick up around an organisational culture and, and sort of, you know, how we do things around here. You know, there's you know, decisions you made, the way you treat other people. A lot of that you pick up from physically being in meetings with somebody or physically being on, you know, in, on the same floor as somebody and so on. So I think it is really important um, for, you know, for people who are you know, newer to an organisation, whether they be junior colleagues or whether they be very senior colleagues, but they're newer to a, a team or an organisation to have some of that physical interaction. But obviously that needs to go two ways because there's not a lot of point in all the junior people coming in and having no senior people there to interact with or, or learn from. So maybe to finish off then, the, all this points to you know sort of a changing sector, changing priorities, changing dynamics. So what do you think the role of the senior leadership within banks needs to look like today? So I think the, you know, when you look at the world we're all operating in, I think, I mean, I think it's probably a bit of a sort of cliche to say things are changing faster now than they ever have done before. Um, but I think it's also probably true. And if you look at, so we, you know, we've talked about technology. Technology has massively changed the way we work, the way we think, the way we consume products, our expectations, you know, we expect 24-7 service, you know, we get irritated if it takes 30 seconds for your, your um, bank app to load up and so on. So the expectations are much higher as a result of that. We're also living in a very, very complex um, geopolitical landscape where there are you know, shifting sands in terms of you know, repositioning of, of you know, the, the great powers. Yeah, the macroeconomic situation is is you know changing again after a long period of you know post crisis low interest rates. We're now looking at inflationary pressures for the first time in developed markets for for a number of years, which puts pressure on um, the system. So, what does that mean for for senior leaders? I think it means that you know you have to be able to take a sort of strategic view which is understanding how all of those big shifts in the outside world are going to impact on your business strategy, your clients' demands, your clients' needs, um, expectations of society, particularly when you're talking about financial services and banking. Um, you know, what are all those things and how does that impact on your day-to-day -day operation? And if you think about it from a compliance-specific perspective, you know, regulation is a massive influence now on business strategy yeah, it always has been but you know regulation now goes into many more areas you know beyond capital and liquidity recent events have reminded us they're still important but you know operational resilience esg cyber you know lots and lots of things that previously were probably not paid a huge amount of attention to by regulators are now right at the forefront so being able to sort of think about all of those things, how regulation might impact your you know, data storage strategy, and then to, yeah, I think from a second line perspective, making sure you're part of what brings the voice in of the outside into that conversation and to say, how might that impact us 
not just this year or next year, but five years, 10 years hence, um, is a key part of the, the role. Fascinating. Um, we could go on forever. Thank you so much, Tracy, for joining me today. You're very welcome. Thank you, Sally. <laughs>